Live from the New York Stock Exchange, this is First Move. I'm Julia Chatterley, and here's your need to know. Yo-yo markets, another day of whiplash. Futures point sharply lower. Less is more. OPEC ready to cut oil output by one and a half million barrels a day. But will Russia agree? And travel turbulence. Aarta says the airline industry could lose up to $113 billion. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. Once again, to all our first movers around the globe, great to have you with us. I tell you what, V, though, is for virus. V is also for volatility. Wall Street bracing for another session of sharp price swings. Take a look at what we're seeing at this moment for futures down sharply, retracing a whole chunk of the 4% gains that we saw in Wednesday's session. That, in fact, was the Dow's fifth straight day of seeing a 1% gain or loss yo-yo markets, as I've already called it. The majors actually exited correction territory yesterday as a result of that rally. For now, though, they're down less than 10% from most recent highs. So I think, uh, as it is, a year-to-date stock check is probably worthwhile. For all the volatility and the choppiness that we've seen, the S&P 500 is down just 3% so far this year. And I say just. The Nasdaq still up in fact, half a percent in 2020. It begins the session above 9,000 once again. Not bad considering all the coronavirus-related uncertainty. Now, as I said, if V is for virus, S is for stimulus. The U.S. House passing an $8 billion emergency funding package yesterday. Now the Senate, of course, needs to vote on it. China, in the meantime, said it's stepping up funding measures. And the IMF and the World Bank announced a $50 billion aid package for developing nations too. Now, we've argued many times on this show that perhaps stimulus here, that kind of spending is superior to rate cuts when they're already so low. And that's what we're seeing. The announcements giving Asian session and the stock markets there a boost overnight. Stocks in China and Hong Kong rallied some 2%. But I tell you what, it's Europe that's setting the tone right now, as you can see down around 2% across the board at this hour. Let me bring you up to speed with the latest on the coronavirus developments. The latest numbers are such. More than 95,000 cases have now been reported, over 3,300 deaths. A state of emergency has been declared, meanwhile, in California after a 71-year-old patient with underlying health conditions died. The cruise ship on which he travelled is being held off the coast. In the UK, the top medical advisor says community transmission is now highly likely and cases linked to Italy have gone global in India, Iceland and South Africa. In Bosnia, Poland and Switzerland, all have reported their first infections now. Iceland and Spain, in fact, seeing spikes to New York now, where a thousand people are being asked to self-quarantine. 13 cases have now been confirmed. As I mentioned, though, there are efforts being made to combat the coronavirus outbreak. The U.S. Senate now poised to vote on that emergency funding bill, committing over $8 billion to the efforts. The IMF 
as I mentioned too, earmarking $50 billion to tackle the crisis. Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, a whole lot to get through, but I think at the core of it here, if we bring it back to markets for a moment, is the sheer volatility. We're reacting yep. to every second, every other headline here, and it's up one day and it's down the other, and I think we should prepare for more. I think you're right. Seven down days and then one big up day and then one big down day and then another <laughs> big up day. I mean, that's what we faced in just the last 10 sessions. And I think election year unpredictability is going to remain the story. Now, one thing interesting about yesterday, 24 hours ago, you and I were talking about the Biden bounce. And then we got a bipartisan boost to that with that $8.3 billion emergency coronavirus funding that Congress so, uh, the House actually so easily passed and the Senate is expected to as well because the president is behind it. Inside of that, you see a coordinated effort to try to make sure there are tests, there's vaccine funding, that there's emergency funding for state uh, and local uh, authorities who need the money for public health services, for community health programs. So you see the money being deployed, the stimulus, as you so rightly put it, uh, being pushed out in terms of the coronavirus. You've seen some positive developments on the same front in terms of money and stimulus around the rest of the world. And so that was the tone yesterday. And then this morning, a stumble again, uh, a pullback again, just because you, know, you just can't get two up days in a row together here. And this is a story of a very volatile election year market, no question. Absolutely. The sheer level of uncertainty here. And it continues. We had a guest on First Move yesterday saying that he believes the coronavirus, coronavirus crisis actually fueled some of the voting for, for Joe Biden here, which I thought was an interesting comment to make on, on Super Tuesday. But one of the other things we're dealing with here is lack of information and, and misinformation. And that goes right to the top here in the United States. We had the president of the United States contradicting the World Health Organization over yeah. the likely death rate here. And he pointed out that we may not be recording all the cases, so he may ultimately have a point here, but we simply don't need it when there's this level of uncertainty. You're so right. And I think, and I really do think that is a subplot in the market reaction, the market um, disarray of the past week or so, this idea that they want to know there's coordinated and responsible response, even even with all of the uncertainties, we don't know how far this virus will go. We don't know exactly how long it will take when the peak would eventually come to the United States, how many people will be sick. And then you have the president calling into a Fox News host show and saying it's his hunch the WHO numbers are false numbers. That's exactly not not what people who want a steady hand in this crisis like to hear. Yeah. Facts first, data first, please. No hunches. Christine Romans, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. Now, the costs to the airline industry mounting up to the AATA, the International Travel Organization, suggesting that the costs could amount to $113 billion in a worst-case scenario. Anna Stewart joins me now. Anna, I reiterate, it is the worst-case scenario here, but it's a significant revision from the earlier estimates of costs, which were, what, around $30 billion. Tell me why they're citing now significantly higher costs. Uh, an absolutely huge jump, as you said there. It is their worst case scenario, but with no signs of the virus being contained, it's a scenario that airlines may well have to face. Now, just to put it into perspective, global airlines uh, losing $113 billion in lost revenues this year equates to around 19% of airlines' business. Now, there is the direct impact of the coronavirus. Of course, those routes 
to, from, within mainland China that had to be cancelled. There's also, of course, the indirect impact of the virus. We can show you some pictures of Hong Kong Airport just to show you a collapse in demand for flights. Hong Kong Airport, usually a bustling airport, looking absolutely desolate. You've got to consider that major expos and events all around the world have been cancelled. Uh, my World Congress in Barcelona. This week, I should be at the ITB uh, travel conference in Berlin. Uh, corporates telling their employees they will not be allowed to do any business travel unless it's absolutely essential. So worst case scenario, you can see how that drop off in demand all around the world will impact these airlines. The CEO of IATA is saying this is a crisis. Yeah, for all airlines, this is a challenge. It's about now trying to reduce capacity to save costs. Mm-hmm. For one particular airline that was already embattled, Flybe, they've gone into administration. Yes, they collapsed in the early hours of this morning. This is a regional uh, UK airline. More than 2,000 jobs at risk there. Uh, no surprise, as you said, it's been on the brink of collapse since the beginning of the year. We knew Flybe was in discussions with the UK government for potential bailout options. However, in a statement, the airline says that their financial challenges have been compounded by the coronavirus, which they say in the last few days has resulted and a significant impact on demand. Now, there are some specific issues for this airline. Uh, competition in the UK regional market was very strong. Some say they were overambitious in their strategy looking towards Europe a few years ago. But they also faced the same headwinds that loads of airlines face, rising fuel costs, falling demand even before the coronavirus. And if IATA's dire warning was to come to fruition... You can only expect that other airlines may find themselves in the coming months in a very similar, very troubling position. Julia? Yeah, for the most weakest, it's a real strain. And that's not just about the airline industry, of course. It's um, across all sectors here. Anna Stewart, great to have you with us. Thank you so much. Now that, of course, and the reduction that we're seeing in global travel well and truly feeding into our next driver here. And that's reduced all demand, not only forecast, but what we're already seeing. OPEC in the interim agreeing that they need to cut output here, cut capacity. They're currently meeting in Vienna. And John Defterius joins us now. Great to have you with us. John, you've been predicting this for weeks. OPEC saying, look, we are ready. We're prepared to cut oil output here. The question is, can they bring Russia on board? And what does the compromise here perhaps look like? Well, that's the multi-billion dollar question, and that's literally the the case, uh, Julia. You know, they're not new to crisis here uh, within OPEC itself, especially because of the Middle East producers. But that demand erosion here because of the coronavirus is radical. We're looking at four million barrels a day in the first quarter, and houses like IHS Market and Goldman Sachs suggesting it'll be over a million barrels a day lost throughout 2020. So it is for real. And I have to say the OPEC response is pretty radical at 1.5 million barrels a day through the first half, basically the second quarter of 2020. Uh, You ask, will the Russians sign on? It's interesting. Uh, Going into the meeting, I caught up with the UAE minister and the Nigerian Nigerian minister, and they both said, we're not going to leave Vienna without a deal, and it won't be a deal splitter within the OPEC plus agreement. We'll have Russia on board. What's the compromise? We hear that Russia is willing to agree to 1 million barrels a day. The Saudis set the bar high at 1.5 million barrels a day to do something in between, or do the Saudis as a swing producer override yet again? That's what happened in December, by the way. The Russians signed on at the very last minute. But the Russians, I'm told, and this is from very senior sources, are suggesting they don't like to give up ground to the shale producers. The U.S. hit 13.1 million barrels a day in the latest quarter, Julia. They're still rising, and Russia feels like, why are we giving this up when we have new big 
projects on the line here that we could produce at $40 a barrel and still make money. Absolutely. And you've still got the likes of the United States, Norway and Brazil producing as much as they like. So the conundrum there is clear for all of these guys. It's going to be interesting to see if we see some disappointment. But, John, I actually want to ask you about the atmosphere there, the environment and how they're actually managing to hold this meeting. You put a picture on social media of the flight that you took to Vienna and the plane was basically empty. How are they managing it amid the, the coronavirus outbreak? Yeah, and that flight from London to Vienna, every time there's an OPEC meeting, it's jam-packed, whether it's Austrian Airlines or or BA or some of the other carriers. It was only 10 of us on that flight, which is pretty uh, surprising. We have a a video here of the foot shake, if you will. This is the Secretary General of OPEC. This was also on social media with the Russian minister, instead of shaking hands, trying to create an atmosphere of lightness, but the situation is quite severe. And what do I mean by that? We can't go into the meeting because they didn't want to have too many journalists in the basement without windows. Uh, They limited the size of the delegations as well. But they recall 2016. It's very fresh in their minds, Julia, when we went down to $30 a barrel. They're not interested in seeing that again. 2008, we're at $147, went down to $30 a barrel. They worked hard to get the OPEC Plus agreement, which was formulated 2016, 2017, and also behind the scenes, and this is something that's real, as a result of the OPEC Plus agreement, they've signed lots of deals between Russia, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, into Africa, going in together. Do you want to throw it away because you don't agree on a half a million barrels a day? I would say the answer is absolutely not. So I think the OPEC Plus agreement lives very strange with the coronavirus. The destruction is radical. And Saudi Arabia is saying, let's send a signal to the market. But I think the interesting response here is, after that announcement, we didn't see the market move higher. Uh, and the market's yeah. questioning whether Russia will indeed sign on. And that's the big question tomorrow. We didn't see it move lower either, John. And that's the key. But I love your point about the incentives here. And it's about far <laughs> more than just the optics of, of being in a meeting. Always great yes. to have you. And actually, to John's point there, we've got an analyst coming up on the show who believes we could see $30 a barrel in oil. So um, watch this space for that. And in the meantime, if you are confused and want more information, facts, and to address some of the fears about the coronavirus, we have got you covered. CNN will be hosting a global town hall. That's Thursday night at 10 p.m. Eastern, Friday morning at 11 a.m. in Hong Kong. Please stick around and watch that. It's hosted by Anderson Cooper and uh, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, too. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that we are following around the world. Russia's President Putin and Turkey's President Erdogan are meeting in Moscow today to discuss the future of Syria. They're hoping to hammer out a ceasefire. The meeting is being seen as an opportunity for the two leaders to thaw their relationship. Our Damon joins us now from Turkey. Our delicate balancing act here, I think, particularly for the Russians caught between the Syrian leadership and trying to uh, attention or give attention to that relationship with, with Turkey here. What hopes really for a ceasefire? That is going to be very much one of those. Let's wait and see what they've managed to negotiate, if anything. As far as we're aware, Putin and Erdogan have already met. Now the delegates 
uh, their delegations are meeting, and then we're expecting some sort of a press conference. And look, the relationship between Russia and Turkey has always been very interesting in the sense that both countries' leaders are fairly capable, for the most part, of compartmentalizing their differences when it comes to ensuring that they're advancing areas in the areas where they do continue to cooperate in things like trade and in defense. But Syria has really tested their relationship, especially since they are on such complete and total polar opposites of this war that has really condensed itself into what is taking place inside Idlib right now. The Russians of course, backing the Syrian regime, want to see all of Syria back under Damascus's control, whereas the Turks most certainly do not want to see that happen for a number of reasons. But pretty high on the top of that list is the fact that they don't want yet another humanitarian crisis um, along their border, which is still closed with Syria. What kind of an agreement can these two leaders hammer out? How will the various fighting parties uh, on the ground take to that, agree to that? That we don't know. Worth noting also that it is hardly the first time that they have negotiated a ceasefire or a safe space or a safe zone of sorts. This has been happening specifically with regards to Idlib for the last two years. Every single agreement has been broken. Every single ceasefire has been shattered. The population inside Idlib, and we were just there, Julia. They say that it doesn't matter what they negotiate because at the end of the day, it will be broken. But if we look at the violence that we've been seeing, especially since the beginning of December, around a million people displaced, having to stay out in the open without sufficient humanitarian aid with the bombs coming in, despite the fact that Turkey has become more militarily involved in Syria. Yes, that has not done much to sort of stop the bombardment of the civilian population. So suffice to say, there is a lot at stake. But at the end of the day, Syria's future is not being negotiated by Syrians. It's being negotiated by Russia and Turkey. Yeah, no, well, you've done some incredible reporting on that humanitarian crisis. So thank you for being there and bringing the story to us. Our Damon there in Turkey. All right, let's take a break here on First Move. But coming up, uh, the South by Southwest Tech Festival is still on. That despite the coronavirus threat and two major names cancelling. And China rolling into the European electric car market with this super slick SUV. We'll take a look. Stay with us. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move. We're counting down to the market open this session. And we are on track to see pretty significant losses when these markets open up. As you can see, we've lost a bit of ground even in the last 10, 15 minutes or so. This, of course, follows 4% gains in yesterday's session, driven in part by healthcare stocks. We saw double-digit gains, in fact, yesterday. Look at that. Wow. This after Bernie Sanders' primary momentum slowed. Of course, he said he'd tackle uh, healthcare in particular and monster spending, of course, too, on full health care for American citizens. The likes of United Health, Anthem, Cigna, Humana are among the outperformers, but they are all lower today pre-market. What about the airline stocks as well? We also saw big gains recovery, let's call it, on Wednesday session two, but those are also sharply lower in pre-market trading after that fresh revenue warning from the industry group AATA, of course, too. Let's talk through what we're seeing. Stuart Kaiser joins us now. He's head of equity derivative research at 
UBS. Great to have you with us. Good morning, thank you. It's a roller coaster ride, even on a daily basis, up one day significantly, down the next. Mm -hmm. Set to hang around for a while, this level of volatility? That, that's our view. Um, even on Monday, when you saw the VIX come down quite a bit, like volatility price three to six months out didn't budge. So I think what the market was telling you is, yeah, the market's rallying a bit here, but we're still quite concerned about what the medium term outlook is. That's interesting. The VIX is a, the stock market measure of volatility, and you're saying even if the the figure that we normally look at on a daily basis for the VIX, the, what you saw in terms of future volatility still says it's going to hang around. Yeah, 100%. So the, the VIX term structure, which goes out about nine or 10 months, right. essentially the front moved down, the middle stayed dead flat where it was. And then yesterday was actually up. So relative to Monday, the, that three to six month range is actually higher than it was uh, when the week started. So we do think the market still is expecting some volatility. That's also normal. Historically, when we go through periods, bouts of volatility, it does tend to hang around for, for several weeks. So the idea that we keep asking, have we seen the worst? Have we seen the lows here for the market? Your view is but simply based on the level of volatility we're seeing, it's too tough to predict. Yeah, we, we don't think the lows are in for the market. Right. You know, we think the volatility market is telling you they're not. If you look at cross asset wise, you know, gold, the yen, the 10 year treasury, which are very defensive assets, volatility is elevated there. And frankly, we still expect some domestic headlines that are going to that are going to you know, stress test the market. a bit. Okay, so we don't think it's in yet. How much more downside then for stock markets potentially? <laughs> Sorry, the million dollar question. I, mean, I think th th that is the million dollar question. I mean, if you look, if you look at periods when the VIX has gotten above 30 in the past, the range of drawdowns for the S&P in the next month is sort of 5 to 20 percent. We got down 15, so we're sort of at the lower end of that already. You know, we don't think this is a 2008 situation yet, um, so we're not going to go in that direction. But I think, yeah, there is there is the potential for still, you know, there another 5 to 10 percent downside relative just to the historical kind of context. You know, there will be a lot of people here saying, I just heard you mention some of the obvious safe havens, yep. the Japanese yen, gold, and yet volatility in those is very elevated to your point too. Yeah. So are they real safe havens? Do you just have to sort of hang on here and stick with them and, and see them as a as a safe haven, despite the fact that you are getting chopped around. It's tough. I mean, that's our view. I mean, the 10 years below 1%. So clearly people are kind of hanging out there as it is. You know, the typical active portfolio manager has been pretty defensively positioned for the last couple of years. You know, even within an aggressive sector like tech or materials, they're owning kind of the safest stock they can find within those sectors. Right. So they're owning a low volatility stock, a safe earnings growth stock, a stock with some dividend yield. So, Such as? Like, what sector should we be looking at here? Uh, you know, the defensive parts of the market have been leadership. So that's been software. You know, that's yes. been a very defensive part. Pharma has been a very, very defensive part of the market. So which is showing some shocking price rises. Well, I mean, there's some election risk kind of yes. that you have to deal with there as well. But I think it's it's at the sector level. So within software, large cap tech has been very, quote unquote, safe. But across sectors, people are still selecting the safest stock they can find within that sector as well. What's the good news here? I feel like we've um, <laughs> scared our viewers to death here. What is there good news? That there are good takeaways from here. I mean, a few weeks ago, we were talking about things like low oil prices being a boon to the consumer. I mean, that's something that's provided a great deal of support, not just in the United States, but elsewhere. I mean, oil lower would be a good news medium term, but, you know, oil has been sort of not responsive to this as much as you might have expected. I think the good news is you've got central bank stimulus. Um, you've got various governments talking about forms of fiscal stimulus. Okay, the good. Chinese government's been very aggressive about it. And from a U.S. perspective, if you want to take a positive, it's we've had some lead time here, right? It, it sort of maybe surprised Chinese authorities to some degree, but at least the U.S. has had time to digest this and hopefully prepare for what is ultimately going to And very on. quickly, because we have around 30 seconds, stimulus Fiscal spending better than lower rates here. 
Uh, you know, it, it's a good, it's a good, this is always the, the big test, right? The ECB has been arguing this for years, that they can only do so much. And yeah. I think that the Fed and, and Chairman Powell the other day sort of alluded to that as well. Like, we're doing what we can do, but we do need some sort of fiscal support. That's always harder to push through, especially in a very sort of partisan arena that we're yes. in. But, you know, ideally, you would like some fiscal at some point. I think the question for both the Fed and for fiscal is, is this the right time for that? You know, when the market is so volatile and we have so little visibility into what the impact is going to be, you know, perhaps fiscal, like in Italy, fiscal has been very targeted. It hasn't been large, but it's been targeted. So maybe that's ultimately how it's Timing is everything. Stuart, fantastic to have you Thank with you. us. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, live from the New York Stock Exchange, State Street. Global advisors ringing the opening bell this morning and the fearless girl behind me on all the displays, as you can see. Bit of fear still in these markets, though. We are looking at a weaker open across the board, a pullback after Wednesday's 4% gains during the U.S. session. European stocks also retracing their gains made to Germany, France and British stocks now down 9% or more since the start of the year. The European banks are close to bear market territory too. So that's a stark contrast, of course, to what we were discussing earlier on the show for the U.S. losses year to date. What about the bond markets? Let's take a look at that too. U.S. bond yields hovering near record lows once again. The U.S. 10-year firmly below that 1% level. Investors are now seeing a 60% chance of yet another Fed rate cut at the meeting this month. All markets also mixed after OPEC members agreed to cut oil output by one and a half million barrels per day. OPEC, though, not OPEC plus. The key now is to get Russia on board in that meeting tomorrow. Brent has fallen more than 20 percent since mid-January on those coronavirus fears. All right, let me walk you through some of our big movers in the session, our global movers in focus. Well, I can tell you we're seeing sharp losses for all the major U.S. carriers today. That after that stark revenue warning from the industry group IATA, it says the coronavirus outbreak could cost airlines at worst $113 billion in lost revenues this year, as you can see, uh, steep losses. What about retail at BJ as well? The wholesale club sharply lower. Actually, now we're tilting slightly to the top side after reporting weak same store sales. We've also got rival Costco reporting earnings out later today. So watch that. But uh, it was uh, earlier. It was lower. Right now, we are relatively unchanged. What about Siena Group? The telecom networking equipment company is out with better than expected profits and revenues uh, a down touch in the session so far today, as you can see, uh, relatively unchanged. Let's call it that. The key focus today, of course, on the U.S. airlines. Now, Netflix and Facebook are also in focus. Why? Because they've pulled out of a major tech music festival blaming the coronavirus outbreak. South by Southwest is a huge event held in Texas next week. Les Sebastian joins us now on this story. Big decisions by some of the big tech giants here simply to say, look, we're going to put our employees first and we're simply not going to send anybody. We'll have to wait and see if others follow here, Claire. 
Yeah, and others, you know, beyond the names that you mentioned, we've had Twitter, we've had Apple, we've had Intel all pulling out of this event, uh, citing directly coronavirus fears. Now, the Austin authorities, this event is held, of course, in Austin, Texas. They say this is still going ahead. They don't have enough evidence yet that there's there's good reason to cancel it. They say they say that even if they did cancel it, people would still come, but they wouldn't have the structure and organization around it and the ability to try to keep people safe. So so that is still going ahead, they say. But, but look, it's easy to dismiss these events as sort of a corporate jolly. They sort of pale in comparison to the public health crisis that we could be uh, facing. But uh, look at it this way. Uh, South by Southwest last year funneled about $350 million into Austin's economy. About 400,000 people attended the, the, all the various conferences and music festivals uh, and things like that. Products are launched. Movies are launched. Networking opportunities. You know, if, if an event like this is cancelled, you never really know what you're losing in terms of economic activity going forward. So I think that's why this... This is a decision not to take lightly, and especially eight days before it's supposed to start. Yeah, and then this is the huge challenge, isn't it? The, the tough decisions that big companies and smaller companies are having to make here. What about one of the biggest events set to be held this year, of course, the Olympics in Japan? We heard from the Olympics minister overnight to say, look, we're still going ahead here. This is a tough decision for, uh, for the Japanese government as well really tough, Julia. They've been working on this for the best part of, of seven years now, not to mention all the athletes who've been training uh, for their whole lives. Japan saying they're still going ahead, working towards uh, the launch as planned on, on July 24th. And we also heard uh, from the head of the International Olympic Committee, Thomas Bach, who, who struck sort of a defiant tone. He said that at the IOC board meeting on Wednesday, the words cancellation and postponement didn't even come up. So clearly the message both from Japan uh, and from Olympic officials is that this is still happening as planned. Uh, but they are already, Julia, seeing some disruption. Uh, several Olympic qualifying events have already had to be postponed or even cancelled. The IOC president did say that, that in some events they might actually have to move to, to quota systems to, to, to decide which athletes can take part. But he didn't elaborate on how that would work. So, so they are still going ahead as planned as such, but, but not immune to the disruption, even uh, you know a few months out from it. Yeah, I mean, the logistical effort that's gone into that, to your point. Well, for now, it remains on. Claire Sebastian, great to have you with us. Thank you for that. To China now. China, as we know, makes and buys the most electric vehicles in the world. It's also home to a startup called iWays, which has just unveiled this all-electric crossover concept called the U6. It chose to display the car in Germany, on paper at least, because the car itself didn't make it, of course, due to the virus outbreak. But that is significant because its U5 model is going to be the first Chinese electric car to go on sale in Europe. However, that's been delayed, as I mentioned, because of the impact of the coronavirus on its Shanghai plant. It's also had a setback by only getting a three-star Euro NCAP safety rating, but the company is working on improvements. Samuel Fu, iWay's founder and president, discussed. Some of our suppliers, uh, they are located in Hubei province and uh, the influenced area. So if we really would like to restart the production line, we should have the consistent supply. Otherwise, that makes no sense. Manpower is also an issue for us because uh, some of the workers, they cannot really come back to the uh, workplace on time. There is excitement about the U5 car in Europe. 
as the first Chinese car to get approval for sale. Tell me about the U5 mm. and what it will cost. The development team, they have a very strong and a very, very good background uh, of European market and they know the market uh, and we know there will, there will be a booming market uh, for the EV cars in Europe. Uh, I think that uh, the car will be very affordable uh, compared to the existing peers in the Euro market. How competitive versus European cars? How much cheaper will it be? Can you give us a sense? 40,000 uh, euro. And finally, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I want to ask the question about safety. There have been some concerns about safety of your cars. Will they be equally safe as a European electric car? We designed and developed this car based on the Europe standard. We're aiming high to achieve a high level safety. But I think in the first wave, uh, ENCAP, we haven't achieved in general a good score, but the passive safety score, uh, star five, that's a, a very, I think that's a, a very acceptable score so far as a, as a startup company from China. Significantly cheaper than Tesla. It's going to be interesting to see what demand looks like there. That was Samuel Pugh, founder and president of the Chinese electric car company iWays. Meanwhile, GM is also unveiling electric cars powered by a new battery, marking a historic shift for the manufacturer. GM, of course, investing more than $3 billion a year in electric vehicle research and development over the next five years. The new battery will hold enough energy to potentially power a car for 400 miles or more on a single charge. That also slightly better than Tesla. The battery cells will be used in several of its new fully electric models, including the self-driving electric cruise Origin and a new version of the Bolt EV later this year. Coming up on First Move, as the OPEC heavyweights meet, we dig into how they're responding to the unprecedented challenge of coronavirus. And can they get the Russians on board? Stay with us. We're back after this. Welcome back to the show. Members of the oil producing nations known as OPEC are ready to cut oil output by 1.5 million barrels a day. This comes as the coronavirus outbreak threatens to suppress global growth and oil demand. Prices are down some 20% since the outbreak began. Joining me on this is Francisco Blanche. He's head of global commodities research at Bank of America Global Research. Francisco, always a pleasure to have you on the show. OPEC members, it seems, are ready to cut oil output. The question is, can they get the plus members on board? Will Russia agree to one and a half million barrels worth of cuts or will the compromise be lower? Um, hi, Julia. Thanks for uh, having me. Uh, look, I, I think Russia and, and uh, OPEC have the same objective, which is to stabilize the oil market. Uh, unfortunately, they have very different macro setups. Uh, remember, most of the core OPEC members are working with fixed exchange rates and have a lot of dollar debt. Um, in the case of Russia, they have a floating exchange rate, uh, the ruble, 
and they have barely any dollar debt. So that makes a, a compromise uh, difficult to reach because Russia cares more about volumes and the Middle East care, cares more about uh, uh, price. Um, so we'll see. I mean, I think, uh, I think Russia ultimately will come in and provide support, uh, at least verbally, but I, I wonder how much they're ready to cut because the other big difference uh, beyond the actual uh, macro setup is the physics of it. Uh, the Saudis have very flexible fields. They can rub the, rub the map and down very quickly. Uh, not so easily done for Russia here. Uh, they have way many, we have many more fields, way, way more spread across the country. So it's harder for them to uh, engage in, in rapid uh, production uh, curtailments, which is what this virus uh, ultimately requires. Interesting. So you're saying just in terms of infrastructure, it's far more difficult for Russia simply to turn off the taps. And also in terms of the economics, right. they're far more comfortable with an oil price that's between 50 to 60 dollars versus Correct. some of the Middle East players here. What does that mean then? What's the risk that actually we well, see further downward pressure on oil prices, even in just in the short term? Well, uh, uh, absolutely. So, so just to, to be clear where we stand ourselves, we, we have uh, uh, put out an average of $48 per barrel on Brent on the uh, second quarter. We changed our forecasts uh, a week ago. And, uh, and the idea here is, uh, sec again, second quarter, we think that prices will dip, will head lower. Uh, we will build inventories very quickly. Uh, we think that uh, oil in the 30s uh, for a brief period of time is possible. Um, and, uh, and as those inventories build, the spot price will come down quickly relative to forward prices, which we think for oil will still be anchored around $50 a barrel, uh, 50 plus dollars a barrel. Uh, but I think the spot could come down quite, quite sharply. And then OPEC will have to take out more and more barrels off the market and, and restrain output and rebalance the market higher. Um, another group of producers that could actually help in the rebalancing is the U.S. shale producers, which, uh, which as, as you know, have been under a lot of pressure in the last couple of years. And, and we could see a curtailment of supply also coming out of the U.S. Uh, that may take also uh, uh, quite a long time, but I do think that the lower prices will also uh, support our rebalancing. So our expectation is prices come down hard in the next uh, few weeks, and then eventually we find the floor, we rebalance going to the end of the summer uh, or into the summer, and prices rebound there if the viral charges drop and, uh, and, and we get our usual seasonal rebound in, in travel activity by June, July. That's our, our baseline scenario right now, uh, Julia. I was going to ask you, what's the risk here of a significant spike in prices in the, in the back half of the second half of the year, simply because, to your point, low prices forces some of the shell players to, to reduce. You've got the cuts coming in from OPEC and OPEC Plus. And then if this is just a one to two quarter crisis here with the coronavirus, suddenly demand comes back and, and we then have a problem in the oil market. Absolutely. I mean, I think I think that's the that's that's the challenge we're facing here. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty as to how long it's gonna it's gonna take for uh, demand to get back to normal. And by the way, we don't even know how deep demand is gonna go down. We've seen some airlines in the last couple of days uh, curtailing the number of flights, uh, international, domestic, uh, in Europe, in the U.S. Uh, we are gonna see people uh, uh, in quarantines. So we're seeing them in some parts of Europe. Uh, some some uh, uh, sections of, uh, of, of of the U.S. are starting to ask people to stay home. So I think, I think all of that is going to have a meaningful impact on transportation demand, which is, I think, what OPEC is trying to uh, kind of put a floor on when it comes to oil prices. Now, unfortunately, we don't know the extent. Is it going to be a week? Is it going to be a month? Uh, is it going to be several months? 
And, and if you look at the Chinese data, it looks like activity is starting to come back in China. But you've had the entire country pretty much on quarantine for about two months. You've had almost a billion people in quarantine. So a huge impact on oil demand there. Uh, we don't know what things are going to look like in Europe and the U.S. over the course of the next couple of months. So that's the challenge. And that's why I think it's such a difficult decision for OPEC uh, today and tomorrow. Um, so we think they're going to at least cut a million barrels a day. The, the, the word out there is they may be cutting a million and a half if Russia joins in. Uh, but we're going to have to see some pretty meaningful cuts in the next few weeks. Um, mm. and, and, and beyond that, second half of the year, I think all this monetary policy is saying if the viral charges drop, will lead to higher prices. To your point, we will have uh, a push-up in inflation because this is essentially a supply shock uh, when it comes to labor. It's a supply shock when it comes to factories producing stuff. And then, of course, people are hoarding. So, um, uh, good. So, so that's going to have a, a, an upward pr- a pressure on inflation, which I think the commodity markets will like uh, in the second half, assuming that the, uh, that the virus starts to fade. Makes sense. Francisco, very, very quickly, because I'm running out of time, I want to pivot and talk about yeah. gold. Is there more upside sure. potential as we see flight to safety in, in gold prices here? What's your prediction? Uh, yeah. Absolutely. We think gold, gold could go a lot higher. Uh, under the case of a global pandemic, we think gold could be as high as $2,000 an ounce. And again, wow. the reason here is uh, pretty straightforward. Uh, central banks are cutting rates very quickly. We saw it this week with the Fed 50 basis point cut. Our rates team is saying we could see another 50 basis points in the next three months. Uh, central banks are reacting very aggressively. But remember, uh, if you have a supply shock because you have no labor and you have factories are shut down, and remember, they're not sh- just shut down because coronavirus. They were also shut down because of the trade war last year that Im- had a bad impact on, on, on industrial activity. And then you add money to the mix. Well, guess what? That's higher prices. And that's exactly the environment that gold likes. Uh, low interest rates or falling interest rates hmm. and rising prices um, so, or rising inflation uh, expectations. So, so my sense is that gold uh, could, could go a lot higher. Again, it depends very much on, on the path of the virus and, and how, how quickly markets normalize. But if, if equities go down here, uh, we continue to see uh, uh, central banks cutting rates around the world. Yes, gold's got has got some room to keep moving higher. Francisco, always great to have you on. Francisco Blanche, the head of global commodities research at Bank of America Global Research. Thank you once again. All right, up next, video conferencing company Zoom jumping again as the coronavirus it means more teleworking. We've got analysis after this. Welcome back to the show and a look at today's boardroom brief. Fleeting tweets. Twitter is the latest social media giant to start experimenting with disappearing content. The new feature is called Fleets. Fleets will be available for 24 hours, appear by clicking the avatar icon and cannot be retweeted or liked. Starbucks, meanwhile, suspending the use of personal cups in its stores to help prevent the spread of coronavirus. It will still honor the 10 cent discount for anyone bringing in a cup of their own, even if they can't use them. The coffee giant says it's hopeful it's a temporary situation. Amazon and Facebook are encouraging employees in Seattle, Washington to work from home after workers for each company tested positive for the coronavirus. Facebook has closed its facility for the rest of the week and both tech giants are pushing telework options through the end of the month. 
Very much related, stock in video conferencing firm Zoom is now up, having been down around 10% pre-market. The rocky ride follows an earnings beat from the company. Paula Monica joins me now, and they talked about record numbers of people teleconferencing rather than attending meetings. This outbreak has the unfortunate benefit of being good for this company. Yeah, I think you're uh, right, Julia. The uh, CFO and CEO both touting the fact that people can work from home using video conferencing tools like Zoom. And this is something that should benefit them, at least in the short term. And Zoom, like many of its competitors, such as uh, Google Hangouts, Microsoft Teams, and Cisco's WebEx, they're having some limited time free offerings for users, particularly those in China, to try and entice more people to try these services out and, and not be on the financial hook in the, uh, you know, in the short term for using them. And I think that's a smart move because obviously a lot of people in China and now across the globe are thinking more uh, about working from home if they don't have to come into the office. Absolutely. And we're just showing a longer term price chart here and it's zoomed high since the beginning of this year. Paul, I mentioned the volatility in just this specific stock pre-market, but it's the whole market, quite frankly, and cross asset. A sheer level of volatility here based on the uncertainty. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we had the so-called Biden bump for the market yesterday, and that's quickly given away to more coronavirus concerns. And I think volatility is probably here to stay because, as we know, the problem with this crisis is it is biological. It's not necessarily financial. So even though the Federal Reserve, for example, just cut interest rates uh, you know, a couple of days ago and may do again sometime soon, it's got a meeting coming up in just two weeks, this is not something that you know people can solve with more money. Yeah, we just have to count the cases, and that's just going to take time and, and weeks to see how this develops. Paul, great to have you with us. Thank Paul you. and Monica there. That's it for the show. We're back in a couple of hours' time. But for now, you've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. We'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.